0: Welcome to The Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. I'm your host, Josh Herring. Today, my guest is Dr. Nick Higgins. Nick is an associate professor of political science and the chair of the Department of Political Science, Criminal Justice, and Legal Studies for North Greenville University. He holds a PhD in political science from the University of North Texas. Nick, welcome to The Optimistic Curmudgeon. Thank you, Josh.
1: Pleasure to be here.
0: So glad to get to have a conversation with you today, uh, particularly about a subject that uh, I distinctly remember you teaching me about years ago. Uh, once upon a time in your 11th grade, uh, what do we call that class? Philosophy and economics, I think, or something? Uh, like that. I don't even remember. It might have been just called civics because it was in high school,
1: but yeah, it was a philosophy like economics that. class is what we made I mean, it into.
0: I'm pretty sure every class you teach somehow turns into a political philosophy class, no matter what the title is. kind of does. Uh, but you you had a section in there that has stuck with me over the years where we kind of looked at some readings from I think Blackstone and then a little mm-hmm. bit from Locke about the nature of laws and over the past year, uh, of course we're recording in September but I'm probably not going to air this episode till January at some point so it may be a whole new status quo by the time we get to january. but over the last year of 2021 I mean it is it seems to me that we're in this moment where there's a lot of confusion over, what laws are what am i obligated to obey does a law have to go through some sort of process i mean uh, hopefully our audience is familiar with the old um uh like uh the the tv show that used to do those like songs the about- house
1: rocks yeah 1970s and 80s yep
0: how a of bill becomes that. law i'm just yes. a bill it's only a bill <laughs> <laughs> Oh, right. And there, there, that's, that song at least taught me when I was five that there was a particular process. But yeah. something seems something else seems to be happening today where uh, suddenly uh, new regulations, guidelines, yeah. policies, laws all seem to be synonyms. And yet, I don't quite think that they are. I'm hoping no. you can help us think through that today.
1: Yeah, well, I I appreciate it. And it's funny because, uh, you know, you just told me that you remember the discussion of Blackstone and when you had reached out to me a couple of weeks ago, over this conversation, the first thing I went to was Blackstone's definition of law, Yes, uh, because I, I think it does provide some useful criteria to, to think this over, but I'm also going to add a little bit more to it because, you know, uh, you know, when you and I talked about this last time, this was, oh, I don't know, 14, 15 years ago.
0: So <laughs> yeah. I've done some
1: more thinking and reflection on it since then and and have some additional ideas. But uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to redo Blackstone's definition because I, I think that's a good start. And, and he's
0: talking about municipal law.
1: So, you know, what is what is a law of a city or a law of a country?
0: And before it you says, do that, would you locate Blackstone Forest chronologically? Is he 17th century, 18th century? When, yeah, when? so he is uh, he's
1: oh, let's see here. That's a, I, now I'm going to have to remember. He was either writing the late 1600s or early 1700s. And on off the top of my head, I don't remember when. Um, So he wrote uh, the commentary on English law, which became really the the transcendent scholarly work on uh, English law historically, but was also the primary method of educating lawyers in both England and the United States as the United States was a colony and then became a country. And then even after it had become its own country, uh, this was partly the things that even Abraham Lincoln in the 1860s would have still read as foundational to his law school education it wasn't until the 1880s that we got to the kind of the modern law school movement but blackstone was a, a key part of it because the american system is based upon what we call english common law and blackstone became kind of the the primary person to not just uh, explain it but to really historically show its development and ideas so yes so blackstone um, would have been read by our founders and has actually mentioned in the Federalist Papers a few times they're appealing to some of his ideas. So obviously his ideas are, are not related to the modern American sense perfectly, but he laid the foundation for the development of the United States. So I'm gonna read this. And so this is talking about municipal law. And he says a, a municipal law is a rule of civil conduct prescribed by the supreme power in a state, commanding what is right and prohibiting what is wrong. And I think there are kind of four key parts to that. Uh, the, first, the first is a rule of civil conduct. It's something that tells you how you need to act in society, right? It, it designs, it, it, so it's a, it's a rule of social interaction in a community. And that's the first thing to recognize about a law is that's what laws are, are trying to do. Is it, it's recognizing that private public sphere that we often talk about, um, but to, to see that in the public sphere, it's appropriate to have guidelines and rules of how to conduct oneself. And then the next line, and this is the one where we're probably gonna have a lot of conversation on today is prescribed by the supreme power of the state. And so this means that it's made by or or written by the person who has the authority uh, to do so. Uh, And that gets into a huge question on uh, really what type of authority is legitimate. And I'm gonna come back to that in a second because I think that's gonna be the heart of today's conversation. But then the other parts of, of Blackstone's definition is commanding what is right And so one of the things to recognize is law is not just there to tell people to stop doing things, but it's also to promote what we call the common good or to promote the the good things of society, particularly, again, within social interactions. And it also, and that's the fourth part of Blackstone's definition, prohibits what is wrong. So there is an aspect of it uh, that tells us what you should not do as well. And there are other parts of law that are important as well as, you know, the law has to be written. It has to have punishments that come with it. Um, all of these things Blackstone spells out more as you kind of go through and, and read some of his definitions on this. But the, the biggest thing to, to think about is this second part, this prescribed by the supreme power of the state, because really this raises a, a rather philosophic question of what type of who's who is the legitimate authority, right? Like we all recognize that we are supposed to obey our authorities and we even mostly want to obey our authorities. But the question is how do we determine whether it's a legitimate authority or not? And this there's a whole area of philosophy of law called philosophy of legal theory. Hmm. And it gets into the question of what are the right sources of, of authority of legitimacy. And and there are two primary ones that I'm gonna talk about today. There are some other subsections, but I think these two are the main ones that you fall into in really any discussions. And the first is what's called positive law. Um, And this is the idea that law is the creation of human beings and can arise under uh, people's desire to create these laws, but there's nothing external to the the law itself that provides any guidance, input, or legitimacy. The legitimacy is within itself alone. And there are two aspects of this. Sometimes this could be called what's called command theory, which is basically the law of force. I command you to do it, and the reason you have to obey it, and the reason it's legitimate is because if you don't, I have something that will force you and punish you if you don't. And this is a form of positive law. It's a form of command where we say, okay. The person with the biggest guns is the one who determines the right laws. Um, And of course, we all kind of shrink at this, like, "Mm, there's there's something here that that I, I don't quite like. But then sometimes in our conversations, this is exactly what we say. You know, we say, oh, you know, taxation is nothing more than robbery of the government or... You know, the government is nothing but a big set of piracy. There's one of the, I was actually just talking about this in my class this past week. We were reading Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian War. And right at the beginning, he's giving a history of ancient Greece. And he talks about the rise of Minos, the the Minoan civilization. You might remember the Minotaur as the the big thing. But he's coming in. He's saying before Minos came, there are a bunch of little pirates all around the Aegean Sea. And they were actually praised because they helped people and they robbed people, but they helped the poor of their community and they robbed others. And he said, there was no shame attached to piracy. And then Minos came and he basically put an end to all the pirates by forcing them to pay tribute to him. And I always say the reality is Minos was just the biggest pirate, right? He was the same thing, just by force. He had a bigger Navy and was able to to control things. And so, what you saw there was is kind of an argument that government is, is really nothing more than the command of force. And the person with the biggest force uh, is the legitimate authority. Now, that's, that's one theory that's out there and we see remnants of it. But again, we don't like it because it doesn't fit with our, our modern enlightenment idea. So there's a second aspect of command theory that's more consistent with our ideas is what, what we call the consent theory. So rather than saying that law is just what the biggest authority over us says, this goes back to Locke and others, is that law is what we've consented to, either explicitly or at least implicitly uh, by you know, staying under the authority while, while they rule. And so consent theory, though, is still an aspect of positive law. It says law is whatever the creation of the society or humans are who make it. And are therefore um, basically, you know, it, there's no external limits to it.
0: Okay, it so, so, those those both sound familiar in a way. I mean, I'm hearing overtures of Thomas Hobbes and the idea of Leviathan in the uh, the, the command theory, but then kind of different variations of Locke and Rousseau's vision of a social compact or social yep. contract in the consent theory. And yep. the consent theory seems to line up with what I think most Americans today would see as, well, I'm, I have consented to live under the rules of the United States and my state and my town, and the particular way I consent to that is through voting for the representatives who are then duly delegated to make laws as they see fit and can get passed through the various processes. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah. No, you're, you're absolutely right. There's, you know, in, in most of these positive law, both
1: command and consent theory um, are, they're not exclusive to kind of the modern ideas, but they're the ones that are more followed by the modern philosophers. And Again, you can find Thomas Hobbes in, in, that, in that kind of command idea, which again, we've kind of rejected. And then you can find more consistent with our ideals in the consent theory. And both of these kind of uh, are derived from this this idea of positive law. That law really is the creation of humans designed for humans. Now, those those ideas, though, are not the only ones out there. And I told you, you know, 15 years ago when we first talked about this, I thought about this a lot more, and I started doing some additional reading, and I, I want to bring in one more definition of law which would be Thomas Aquinas' definition of law. And this this is from the Summa Theologica. And it's very similar, but there's one key difference that I want to bring out here. And so Thomas Aquinas says that law is an ordination of reason by the proper authority for the common good and promulgated. And so you'll hear many similarities, right? So by the proper authority, right? We're still trying to figure out what's the proper authority, uh, you know, Blackstone says, commanding what is right, prohibiting what is wrong. Aquinas says, for the common good, right? So still similar ideas. Uh, Aquinas says it's promulgated. You have to make it clear. You can't just make it, you know, all of a sudden ex post facto, like, hey, I told you that was against the law, but I didn't actually tell you what the law was. Those are, you know, those are problems. But the key addition for Aquinas is that first line, the ordination of reason. And here... Aquinas is following kind of a a scholastic idea and an ancient idea of natural law theory that laws are not, laws are valid, but only when they're within the bounds of consistency with the created order. And with, you know, and so for those who are Christians, you would say this is because the way God has imbued his character in creation. Um, But even for those who are not, we would say, that there are certain regulations and orders to the natural order and reason will help us discover what those things are. And so the natural law theory is a little bit different than the positive law theory, because it says there are laws that are made by humans that have to correspond to these ideas of, of, reason or the the natural law and anything that doesn't correspond to that is not a law and you might hear and I'm sure you've read this with students before a little bit of Martin Luther King Jr.
0: I was just thinking of the letter from a Birmingham jail that this, yes. is, the, this is I actually just taught this uh, last week to some aspiring Lincoln Douglas debaters we're in the uh, the season with the uh, NSDA novice LD resolution about uh, civil disobedience is morally justified in a democracy. It's those yeah. three clauses, but I always mix those up. But we were talking about the fact that it you you can, in fact, have an unjust law. And part of what makes civil disobedience so powerful is that you're actually tapping into a pretty universal recognition that an action is unjust and that you and it, it when you perceive that injustice, King and in lining up with Immanuel Kant and others would say, you're morally obligated to reject that unjust law, that you only follow an unjust law, mostly because you fail to realize that it's unjust. So seeing visceral disobedience and the suffering as a consequence uh, provokes the conscience and and so on. Uh, But yeah, I think there's, and he's one of the clearest voices I've ever read to articulate the idea that just because Congress has passed a law doesn't mean it's a law in this highest sense. If a human law violates a law of reality, then human law has to subordinate to that. So if you have an unjust law, you're actually obeying a higher law if you reject the unjust law. Right.
1: And so this is, this is where you see that kind of clear distinction between natural law theory that's, a, that's appealing to a higher law on some level versus the positive law theory, which is kind of you have to follow the law that's created by your legitimate authority. Um, and so those theories are important for us as we think through some of these things, because it, it reminds us that whatever our legitimate authority is, the question is, are they bound by an authority above them or not? And if we say that they are not, if we say that they are, you know, it's just our consent, if the majority will, or just because they have the most power, then what that tends to mean is we as the people are obligated to follow all kinds of laws, regardless of whether or not they are moral or whether or regard that they are just. Um, but when there is this conception of natural law, it reminds us that the laws themselves, the legitimate authority, they there's a point in which their legitimate authority no longer exists, even though their legitimate authority everywhere else. there's there's a boundary. And so when that boundary is exceeded, then the ability to uh, ignore that authority is there because they're no longer legitimate. They've stepped outside their area of legitimacy to a place where they don't have uh, the the ability to to regulate. And so those are, I think, our deep philosophic issues, but kind of help us as we're wrestling with some of these ideas Because it helps us understand what we, as citizens, are bound to do.
0: I think that's a key word to keep in mind here, too. I remember uh, uh, different professors over the years making a distinction between subjects and citizens. And that the subjects of a king don't really participate in the decisions of the king. But there's an important distinction where the citizens, as members of the Civitas, are part of the life of the city, and they, too, have a role to play. So, yeah. and as we kind of get into this, I think it's important to frame it as, like, not that as a, this, this is not a quasi, neither of us are quasi-revolutionary type people. I mean, we're not looking to overthrow the current government or reject legitimate law and order. But it is part of the American experiment of, of of ordered self-government, of of liberty under law, that those who have liberty have to kind of always be looking at these questions of the boundaries. And are the groups that have power, whether that's through this uh, natural law understanding of of power, or whether it's through a consent or command understanding of power, is it the right exercise of power in this particular act, or is that an illegitimate growth of power that? we as citizens out of the love of the polis as a whole ought to resist. I think that's, that's, is that, would you agree with that? Or would you nuance that? Any further? Yeah. I
1: mean, I, I,
0: fundamentally, I think this idea that you start with is that as American
1: citizens, primarily we are to be self-governed and, and as you know, and, and again, we've had these conversations before the less self-governed we are, the more I need to be externally governed. Mm-hmm. And so one of the the primary things is anytime I see the promulgation of more and more rules, it to me means that there's actually problems with the citizenry and their ability to govern themselves because (laughs) if they could govern themselves, there would not need to be external rules or at least as many external rules. So, you know, we can talk about the growth of these external rules, but one of the things that we have to understand is for those who are trying to be self-governed, who are trying to learn this to act prudentially and wisely in a situation, Sometimes there are going to be extra rules that we don't like, but are still legitimate, are still absolutely done by the authority, they're not in violation of the natural law, you know, we still, we don't like them, you know, if in the perfect world we wouldn't have them, but the reality is that's not the world we live in, and so they're, they're going to exist, and therefore we need to still follow them, but It is worth recognizing that the legitimate authority of a government ends at some point. Mm -hmm. And we as citizens are able to say to the government, when that legitimate authority ends, I no longer have to obey that specific command. I may have to obey every other command, right? And that's one of the things to realize, just because they overstep in one area doesn't delegitimize every other area that they're in. But And this is where I get think Martin Luther King Jr. Is, is a great example, because he would say you would still have to obey the government and the traffic laws and all these other laws that are, are going on. But when it's this area, of, uh, when it's unjust, you have to disobey. And what's interesting with Martin Luther King, not only do you have to disobey, you actually have to suffer mm-hmm. because they have the legitimate authority to punish the violation of their own laws. And that that is a legitimate authority they have. So this is why he's writing from jail. I mean, you know, the letter from Birmingham Jail is, in fact, when Martin Luther King Jr. is in jail, arguably for a very unjust, you know, uh, punishment. But he's not saying you can't throw me in jail. He's saying, no, you can throw me in jail, but it's incorrect for me to, to obey those laws. So I'm going to be willing to suffer in jail, like you said, to kind of prick the conscience and hearts of those around. Uh, who might recognize that these laws are unjust and then work to, to changing it. And I think that kind of brings to that, that central point of what we're wanting to talk about is what type of government is legitimate? At what point is the, is the government's rules or, or policies legitimate for us to follow? And I think to some degree, a lot of that's going to depend under the regime that you're under. So we're under the United States. And so there are, you know, there's our Constitution, there's state laws, state rules, and those are going to impact what laws are legitimate or illegitimate. And sometimes it's it's wholly appropriate uh, for someone to kind of toe the line and say, well, I'm not sure this is legitimate and I'm going to pursue this up through the court systems and go as far as I can to make you either say this is legitimate or this isn't legitimate. And I am thankful uh, that there are groups out there uh, or individuals out there that are sometimes willing. I'm I'm not one of them. I want to make it clear. I don't tend to do this, but I am grateful for those that are saying, hey, under your own rules, under the own rules of the game that we've established here, these policies and declarations aren't Right, they don't flow from the rules that we've agreed upon, mm-hmm. and therefore they need to they need to end. Um, and so there are people who are going to even appeal the laws don't apply to us because it doesn't fit the rules of the game. And I and I think that's an important way too. And, and that's where a lot of lawsuits are going on. I'll, you know, I'll mention one that came up relatively recently that I think was was quite a good decision. Um, you know, in the midst of the pandemic in the summer of 2021. Uh, there was a law that extended um, renters the ability to not pay uh, their, 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 uh, their rent uh, for a while. And that law had first been passed by Congress and had lasted one year from 2020 to 2021, and it came to an end in 2021. And so uh, President Joe Biden, by executive order, said, well, we're going to extend this going forward.
0: And While also um, publicly stating that it was unconstitutional to do so.
1: Yes, yes, which I, I agree with, I agree with him on one of his statements. Yes.
0: <laughs>
1: um, but, you know, so he he extended it. And then, of course, someone sued and it went to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court basically said, this is ridiculous. We're, we're not going to listen to this. This isn't, we're not going to let this go on. The legislator needs to pass the law. And so what I appreciate is the Supreme Court stepped in and said, the rules of the game are not being followed. So it's not that this law is a moral law or a violation of natural law. That wasn't the the question here. The question here was, did the legitimate authority follow the proper steps that we designated as necessary to promulgate these laws and rules? And the answer is, according to our constitution, we've given the legislative power to the Congress to people whom we elect uh, and that are coming from our states. And therefore, the president, even though we elect him, uh, doesn't have the power to make laws of, of his own or even laws that are consistent with something Congress already did, right? And make it last longer. You know, Congress passed a law, it ended at a particular date. The president can't say, well, I really like that law that Congress had and I want it to continue another year or two. The, the, the rules of our game, according to our Constitution, is that laws have to be made by Congress, and if they're not made by Congress, then they're not legitimate, right? Then they're not real laws.
0: So what I'm taking from this so far is that a law is a, an official statement from, a, from the right authority that governs how the citizenry ought to act, whether positively or negatively, It's got to come out in a certain form so that everyone understands it. And that um, when those criteria are met, we are uh, members of a society, of a country, of that group are morally obligated to obey those laws. Doesn't mean we always do, but we are obligated. We should obey those laws. Well, now. What would you say to some of the other vocabulary words that have been used a lot over the last year? I'm thinking particularly of guidelines, recommendations, and policies that are coming from non-elected agencies. Um, The CDC, I think, is the biggest example of this, that they have... They've issued guidelines that apply to renters, to homeowners, to uh, businesses, to schools, to all kinds of places, and yet the CDC does not have the legislative authority that Congress has. So how what what would you say to to that kind of that that situation? Yeah, so so this
1: so we've moved kind of from the philosophic questions and I, and I think you summed it up very well with that statement to the the specific questions of, within our system, within our analytical system, what do we do when it seems the rules are not applied or used the same way uh, at the same time? And, And what do we do with, you know, we talk about laws, we talk about administrative rules, we talk about guidelines, like we have all of these things that sound like laws but no one wants to call them a law. Why, why is it they don't wanna call it a law? And yet we still are, are told we have to obey it as if it were a law. And so this is where I'll get into a little bit of American government uh, policy and history uh, to, to help us understand it. The reality is there is an aspect of making laws and then enforcing laws that, that gives some room for discretion. So uh, this, is, this is something I've used in class for a few years. Let's say, for example, uh, there's a law at your local park and the park says no vehicles on the grass. Okay, so there's, there's a rule. And let's, you know, let's say it was passed by all the, all the proper authority. So I bring my children to the park and they are borrowing a friend's four-wheeler. And they're four-wheeling all around the, the park, and and you know, someone comes and stops them and they point to the rule and says, Well, the rule says no vehicles on the grass. And my children say, Well, this isn't a car, this isn't a truck, it's not a vehicle, it's not a road vehicle, it's an off-road vehicle, you know, and so that doesn't apply here. And of course, the the police officer is gonna look at them and say, Yes, of of course it does, because it's still a, a vehicle. Well, let's try it again, but instead of, instead of using a four-wheeler, what happens if they're just using a little remote control car? Okay? So it's still something powered by an engine, battery operated perhaps. It's you know, is that a vehicle? Or take it one step further? What happens if my my eighteen month old baby was had a little hot wheels, right? He's just playing with his little hot wheels <laughs> on on the grass. Is that a vehicle? And of course, when we get to that one, everyone in the right mind say, of course, that's not a vehicle, but here's, here's the reality. When a law is made, not all aspects of the law are clearly defined. So the word vehicle has a common iteration that we do understand, but there are aspects of it that are not clearly defined. Now, some laws do you know, define things very clearly, particularly tax laws, tax laws are really good at like every possible iteration of what they mean. But some laws are are a bit more general. And so when we have a law that says, you know, no vehicles on the grass, then what that means is in our system where you have the legislator that makes the laws and then you have the executive that enforces the law, the executive has a little bit of discretion in defining what that law means, so the police officer at the scene, you know, he might say, "Hey, this remote control car isn't a vehicle," and he could give justification for it, like we obviously hope it, it's consistent with other rules and things like that. But maybe another, maybe another uh, police officer would say, "Well, you know what? It is a vehicle because it's tearing up the grass. It's it's got a motor. It's being operated." You know, the only difference is size, but size isn't the definition of vehicle. And so the executive who enforces the law has discretion on how to define the words. Now, if you do that, what starts to happen is every individual enforcer, so every police officer, starts to say, well, I think this is a vehicle. I don't think that's a vehicle. And so what do you get? You get sometimes where someone's punished for riding a four-wheeler and sometimes they're not. Someone's punished for having a remote control car and sometimes they're not. Someone's punished, just depends on who the police officer happens to be that day. And of course, we as citizens are going to complain and say, well, there's a problem there. Like we want the law to be applied equally and justly and fairly. And so the local police office is going to come up with a rule. They're going to say, For the sake of my police officers, a vehicle is now defined as something over 50 pounds that uses gas engine that someone can sit on, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh That's what vehicle means. And so now you have the difference between the law and the rule. The law is no vehicles. The rule becomes the specific definition of some of the terms of the, the law that the enforcers are going to follow. Now here's where things get really complex and, and really strange. <laughs> so in the American system, generally we, we would argue or I would argue that we were to be a, a government of limited, uh, particularly at the federal level of limited authority, of limited powers, mm-hmm. delegated limited authority. Um, but over the years, what has happened is, is that authority has grown for a variety of reasons. And what started to happen as the, that authority was grown, Congress would pass a law and then the president would enforce it. But then the next time a, a new president came in, all of a sudden those definitions changed. And someone might say, well, wait a second, I'm a big fan of remote control cars. And so Or I hate remote control cars. So those are now considered vehicles. And so now what starts to happen is every time you get a new administration, the rule is redefined. So the law stays the same, but the definition is now changed each administration and people say that's not fair, because now you're going to have people who are supporting their own political party and they're going to define the rules in their favor. And so uh, what we need to do is we need to have a group of people who are not elected, so that way the rule stays consistent. And of course, this is this is made even worse just by American hist- history that we actually had a president assassinated in light of this. So there, uh, James B. Garfield, who was a, a American president, was assassinated because a supporter of his. Who thought he would get a plum government appointment when Garfield got into office didn't get that appointment, and so the vice president was. You could think of it like the Republican Party or the Democrat Party, where even in the party there are different groups. There, you know, even though they're under the same party, there's slightly different emphases and groups. And this, you know, this has happened throughout American history. And so James B. Garfield was part of one group, uh, the. Vice President was a part of another group, and this person thought he was going to get a plum government appointment, so he could enforce the laws consistent with with their party. Well, he didn't get it, so he's like, "Well, the way I need to get it is if I can kill the president, then the vice president becomes a president, and I will get that appointment." So the guy named guy's name's Charles Gateau. He goes and he sh- shoots President Garfield, who then dies, uh, I think, a month or two later. He actually died of sepsis, not technically oh, the gunshot, but, okay. but from the, I mean, from the gunshot. But um, And of course, Charles Gateau did not get the, the plum appointment. But this brought to the American public's attention all of these people vying for appointments in the government to make these rules. And so they said, you know what we need to do? We need to come up with people who are not partisan, who are not elected to do this. So they created what's called the Civil Service Act or the Pendleton Act of 1881. And this law basically made where, basically started our bureaucracy as we now understand it. As a group of people who are technically part of the executive branch, whose job it is, is to take the law, define the specific rules to ensure that it's enforced consistently, but to do so without any political bearing of being of one party or another.
0: Okay. So, so you're with me kind of historically how this is yeah, happening. Yeah, yeah. I'm like... So there's well, a couple things that, that I want to follow up on there real quick. Um, okay. And then I'm, then I'm going to get to the worst part of it. Like, we're not exactly okay. right. well, Like So for starters, this is part of why it made sense for when, when Trump came into office. Like, one of the first things he did was announce his uh, two regulations have to be cut for every new regulation that comes out. Because we have that, – that puts us at 140 years of these – Uh, different agencies and bureaucracies to kind of pile up applications, addendums, um, extra policies, nuanced understandings of these things. The second thing, though, so I'm doing a uh, fellowship with the Mercatus Center this semester, and we just finished a really short bit on public choice theory That seems to come in here because public choice theory would argue that political actors or in this case government bureaucrats are not immune to all of the inducements and incentives that ordinary citizens or politicians are aware of so this sounds like an interesting idea on paper that i can see fitting a that's the scenario that you contextualized it within i just don't think it would work because the Uh, it is still the case that the president gets to assign, the president gets to appoint heads of agencies who then can fill in gaps and um, without hopefully being too offensive to the hundreds of thousands of people who work for the federal government, um, U.S. bureaucratic positions are famously impossible to fire people from. So incompetency runs rampant in in these offices. So, I mean, it all somehow still works, but... So yeah, yeah. And, and, and so you so
1: you've noticed I mean the, the public choice and, and the economic literature on this is really useful because it raises this idea of what incentives are created because you've changed the incentive structure, right So before the incentive was loyalty to the executive office that can. Now the incent- the incentive structure is not to be loyal, but to actually kind of create your own bombproof area. And as much as possible, just be left alone and you know, occasionally to, to do things. And so, but it also created this is where it gets funny, it also created incentives for our legislatures, for our for Congress, because all of a sudden Congress now recognizes that you know what's the, the reality is people who vote for them really don't like the specific laws, but they like the general ideas. And so For example, if we passed, and and Congress has done this, so if you pass a law saying we want health and safety in food, great. You're going to get lots of people like, yes, we want healthy food. We want safe food in the United States. Perfect. Okay. So Congress will then pass that general law, push it over to the bureaucracy whose then job it is, is to define what health and safety in food is. And so they'll say, well, you know, that means in milk, you have to produce it this way, or chickens, you have to do it this way, or or one of my favorite, this is actually a legitimate rule of the FDA, like, how much cockroach bits and rat hair can you have in a chocolate bar, in a Hershey bar? Okay, now that's a very specific definition, and they will tell you, I think it's 20 parts per million, so the answer is not zero, just so you know, like, normally we think, how much cockroach or rat hair should I have in a Hershey bar? The answer is 0. The best answer is always 0. But of course, the 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 bureaucrat making the rule, they have to think about what Hershey wants and if you I don't mean to malign Hershey or any chocolate maker, but the reality is they want as few rules as possible. So for them it's you know, they don't want, any, you know, they would be okay with whatever cockroach that fell in there that
0: no one found out as long as nobody's complaining,
1: right? Like that's that's their 20 limit. 20 parts
0: per million allows for maybe one cockroach in a vat of chocolate.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so you know, and so the, the bureaucracy is now trying to, to follow these rules because they have the people who want zero and then they have the chocolate maker who wants this and whatever they come to is going to anger both sides right it's going to the people because the people are like it's not zero and the chocolate ear is like well it's not whatever we want and so what congress has learned is they can kick over hard decisions decisions that make people uncomfortable to these bureaucracies and so it has become an incentive for congress to make general rules and then let the bureaucracy define the laws and you will actually if you read a lot of laws that congress passes they will say you know we're going to create healthy food as defined by the FDA and so they're basically just giving authority to the FDA to promulgate those rules to def- to follow the law and so in a weird way the FDA or the bureaucracy they're not making laws they're making rules but they've been handed a lot more authority by uh-huh. so that it's called the delegation of of rule making power right they've been delegated this authority by congress because it's in congress's best interest not to make people angry at them because then they won't get re-elected so you make the general laws you let you let the bureaucracy make the specific things that annoy people. And then what happens is when your constituent says, hey, you know, I don't like what they, they did, then the congressman, so no, I will come to the rescue. I will step in and fight against that bureaucracy for you. And I will be your champion against those specifically bad laws. So what they've created is an incentive to pass the buck of lawmaking, of rulemaking over to the unelected bureaucrats because of their interests. And well, that's so
0: really helpful, at least these two different ways, I think that 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 makes sense. I've heard for years that the uh, the original um, uh, Obamacare legislation had blanks in it, that it was literally so this amount will be provided for blank condition. That's just that's written knowing that this system is going to take care of it once it's passed. And then yeah. but then the other thing is like. So is this part of why people say our legislature is broken? Yes, this I mean is,
1: this is this is one of this is one of the the main reasons, and um, you know I, it, it's a it's multifaceted. This is this is not the only facet, but the reality is the legislature is broken because they are unwilling to do the hard decisions that lawmaking requires, right? They, the, because the reality is making laws is hard, and when you talk about doing what's for the common good, and you're talking about you know, commanding what's right and prohibiting what's wrong, there's going to be arguments and debates, and eventually you're going to make a stance, and some people are going to disagree with you on that stance. But if you make it right, if you go through the process and argue over it, you're at least going to have a strong reason. So back to Aquinas' ordination of reason. You're going to have a strong reason why this is the decision you came to. And you're going to be able to articulate it and defend it, even if, you know, recognizing that not everyone's going to agree with you on it. But part of the, the, the challenge is, when you've passed the buck over to someone else, not only are you not doing your job very well, you can get to blame someone else if nothing works very well. So it's it almost as if the structure has been not designed, but has been by some of these rules and, and, and passing over, has been designed to protect lawmakers from hard decisions and putting all the controversial decisions in the bureaucracy. And that's often what, what we see. And of course, you mentioned earlier, a, a count, not a counterpoint, but a consistent point with that is, even in doing this, because the bureaucracies are under the executive power and because the, the president appoints the heads of the bureaucracy, not all the day-to-day workers, but the heads of them, then what happens is when the president comes in, those new heads can still kind of do the same things that happened before where they make kind of partisan preferential ideas towards their political stances and they will try to define rules along those ways. So again, in, in 2021, one of the big political issues that, that happened in, in 2020, or 2019, 2020, and 2021 is the question of how do we define sex and gender in the bureaucratic rules? And so Trump came in and said, we're gonna define sex based upon its biological component, the way that you're born. And then and then Biden comes in and says, no, we're gonna define it based upon your identity, right? But again, because a lot of rules impact sex and gender, the transfer of those terms is gonna have huge impacts on, on how things are done. And here you have where the heads of the department are still able, based upon political positions, to kind of regulate and and make rules for this. And the reality is there is a a very simple solution, just have Congress make the laws and have them make the definitions, right? But the the problem is, the incentives are for Congress not, not to do this. And so, you know, back to the beginning and, and to kind of how we started this, are these laws, are these rules legitimate commands of, of, our, of our authority? The answers are, in most cases, yes. And again, I, I, I want to go back to what I said. I always appreciate there are people who are towing the line and saying, you didn't decide this the right way or you did this the wrong way. And, and we always need to make sure that the processes are done consistently. Um, But the reality is the way Congress has delegated authority over to the bureaucracies, many of these things are within the authority of the bureaucracy because our legitimate rulemaking institution has given it to someone else. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. Although you might argue, well, how much can they give before they no longer are the, the rulemaking institution. And I do think that there's, you know, some point that that might be itself a a good argument. Um, And and so then for all these, you know, mask mandates, you know, with the COVID situation or, um, you know, rental assistance or all these things are going on, there is still a big debate over whether the rules followed the proper steps. Because again, it has to be done in the right way, in the way that we've designated. And so those can, I think, always be challenged, i.e. this wasn't passed in the right way. This wasn't passed, you know, uh, President Biden can't make that executive order, Congress has to do it. Or um, in South Carolina, there was, uh, so there was a law passed this summer that prohibits high schools from uh, having mask mandates and that was passed in a budget resolution. so part of the argument is, you know, can you, when you're talking about money, can you can you just add anything you want to that bill? And that's kind of a technical question of whether the law went through the right steps. And I, I think that those challenges are important and should be supported wherever they are. But once those challenges are done, we have to say, you know what? If it went through the right steps, it's probably a legitimate. A legitimate decision that we are obligated to follow because we are doing this as long as it and it goes back to that natural law as long as it's not in violation of the natural law okay. and 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 there you know the issue i would say one quick way it's not the only way the quick way to determine whether something's in violation of natural laws are they forcing you to do something that is immoral not something that you don't like because laws often force me to do things i don't like but are they forcing you to do something that's immoral and if they are then you can have a we could start having a natural law argument that maybe i don't have to obey it um but the reality is you know my political position notwithstanding forcing a landlord to uh wait for rent from a from a tenant is not immoral right they're not forcing me to do something that's immoral um regardless of what my political position on it is right is it immoral for me to go to a school where my my kid has to wear a mask no it's 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 not immoral right now i don't i may not like them there you know there's prudential arguments and i always say Because laws are supposed to be reasonable, even if the law is something you don't like, you should still be able to talk to the lawmaker, work on adjusting it, and present reasons for its change. And I, and I think that that's always important.
0: I think part of that, part of that, I was, I'm thinking now about those 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 examples you just raised. I mean, part of that depends on the strength of what we, of how how strongly do we read the question of moral or the the term moral i mean if if the word moral simply means it's ancient roman mores or customs um that's one thing uh we typically don't use it that way i don't think most people use moral or immoral to refer to their sense of a violation of the good or upholding the good i'm doing what is right i mean i think there's a i would i would not make a strong i don't think it's a very strong argument but there is a there's an argument to be made uh that um the ma- masks as just masks are at the very least, they are, they're a harm to uh, human interaction. And for very young children who are forming their initial perceptions of who people are and learning how to interact with people, I'm talking about like three and four year olds, like that, the youngest ages uh, that are we doing some uh, measurable harm to them by uh, through either requiring them to wear masks or having them only interact with adults who are wearing masks, are we sev- are we harming a natural process of forming human connections? Now, again, yeah, not and a and- really and- strong argument, but I think the the question is real there about are is there a stronger harm, and which might rise. Now, I would I I think I I think I would disagree with you about the uh, the the rent moratorium idea though. Like, I would cast that as immoral because the. Uh, The the owner is not getting the use of his property. He's not getting the return on his investment. There is a natural process that is being stopped. Uh, So, I I mean, there's in a sense there's that's a theft of that's a theft of money from the owner. And it's a it's a permissible theft uh, in this case. So I I think I would argue that one rises to the level of immoral, but that's already solved through the Supreme Court saying it's unconstitutional. (laughs) Yeah, and and you know,
1: obviously, we could have some of those specific conversations, and and I think what you you raise in in both cases is, in most issues, moral ideas are implicated. Uh, I think this is I think this is the reality in anything in life. But one of the things that we have to ask ourselves is what not whether morality is implicated in it, but are you being asked to do something immoral? Mm-hmm. So, for example not saying that that it, that there's not morality in particularly the the issue of tenant and landlord discussion but is the landlord by forbearing rent and remember it's a forbearance it's not saying right. that they don't ever get it uh is, well, is a landlord being yes but don't to have- be immoral to do that and, and i would say no
0: um now it's not actually going to get his rent if i if i so if i have a thousand dollars a month rent and i'm already in a lower economic position that i'm renting instead of buying and then yeah. i have 18 months where my rent is forborne and i owe eighteen thousand dollars yeah i have not I, I don't think i've stuck that away in a bank account because now yep. if i was wise i would have but if you're my landlord you know what, I'm just gonna be like, well, Mr. Higgins, Dr. Higgins, you can take me to small claims court. (laughs) You can, that's fine. But uh, I'm moving out and I'm actually moving to Arizona and bye. (laughs) Once that's, so like, there was a permissible theft there that I don't think, I I, I think it's horrendous. I mean, we're setting up a, the consequences are are real. We're going to feel those, but the system (laughs) itself permits that kind of activity. And it's a, It's a legal and favoring of the people who don't own property over the ones who do own property. I, absolutely,
1: and, and and as I said, it's not that not that these are in, not that, that there's not morality doing, but the the point is the landlord is not being commanded to act immorally, right? No, Forbearing rent is you know they're being commanded to be to. Basically, recognize that they may not get the money back. They're being commanded that you know to do this, but they are not being told to act immorally. They're being acted immorally against. Okay. I agree okay. Right. So, so that's the distinction that I'm making. Okay. Okay. To be acted immorally against is much different than being told to act immorally. So, to be acted immorally against. I, I still have to kind of obey that law as much as, now, again, I'm going to try to change it and as, to a certain degree, again, we've talked after the Supreme Court has made a decision, so this is somewhat of uh, hypothetical, but you could fight against the processes and, and things like that. But part of, part of the natural law is if it's a legitimate authority, right? If it goes back, if it's a legitimate authority and they command you to be punished for something you didn't do, do you still have to accept the punishment? And I think the answer is yes, you, you do. And so that's kind of what's going on here. The the landlord is being told that they have to accept a punishment of not getting rent. Immoral, unjustified. Now, again, you know, hopefully the government has provided programs and they can access it. Like again, I'm I'm hoping for the common good that some of the laws are are done better than the that's going on here. But they aren't being commanded themselves to act immorally in response. And so, one of the things that I, I think we as, as citizens often forget, and, and this is where I think natural law uh, is, is a really good thing to, to think about and to, to, to talk about, is that natural law puts limits on the authority of what, uh, or what the limit of authority for a, a government is. But it also recognizes that governments can act ways that are wrong, but not, nonetheless still have to be obeyed, right? And so there's, because there's, one of the things we think is, oh, well, if the government ever does anything that's wrong, then we don't have to obey. And that's, that's not what natural law theory says, or, or, you know, I'm sure, I know you've been to Act in University and, and some of the, the groups up there, you know, you talk about the three spheres of government the sphere of government within its own sphere, even if it's doing something that's not just, I don't like, but something that's wrong, it still has the authority to act wrongly, just as a parent who might be doing something wrong to their child um, is still has the parental authority and it doesn't diminish their parental authority. Uh, Now you want, now uh, hopefully wisely, someone will come in, correct them, stop them, guide them, et cetera but it doesn't mean that the authority is, is now gone because you did this one immoral thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, you know, one of the things that, and, and maybe for your listeners and, and for people kind of interested in this, I haven't read the whole series, but there's a, a uh, there's a great web zine called public discourse mm-hmm. uh, that is out there. It, it's put off through the um, James Madison program at Princeton university. Now, uh, Institute.
0: I, That's uh, right.
1: Sorry. But uh, yeah, sorry, Matthew Frank, who is at the James Madison Institute, was also on on board. That's I apologize. That's why I confused. to the Witherspoon Institute, thank you very much. Um, but it's it's a great program, and I want to say at the end of August, twenty twenty one, they did a week long series on the natural law, and it's a really good series of of both theological, like how does Aquinas, how do the Protestants come in, but also some practical how does natural law theory and thinking work in society? And so for, you know, those listeners who are kind of interested in that, I would encourage them to to go look at that. Like I said, I think it was the last week of August 2021 uh, that this was was written. And there was maybe half a dozen to a dozen different articles talking about it.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. I mean, there's a I think it's a really interesting space where there's been a a lot of the thinkers in the natural law sphere have been Catholic over the years. But I think there's there's an increasing number of Protestants who are trying to uh, kind of look back at those same tools. And that's it's not a that's not foreign to Protestantism. I think C.S. Lewis was one of the best natural law thinkers across a variety of of, of areas. uh, But it's certainly something that not has not been very common in evangelical circles in recent years. But it provides so many helpful tools to be able to think through things in a clear, rational, logical way that depends upon um, uh, non-biblical evidence for most of its reasoning, which is really helpful in a secularizing uh, secularizing society. Now, yeah. Um, Nick, as we're kind of uh, wrapping this up, let me uh, I I do want to just pick your brain about some specific examples. I was thinking through some uh, things that I've uh, run across in the last few months. Uh, So let's see if we can uh, keep these as kind of short, short uh, examples. But uh, a governor declares a state of emergency and orders a string of executive orders related to those that emergency. Do his orders have the, the force of law?
1: So that's going to come depend a little bit on each individual state and what kind of power the legislator has delegated to the governor under states of emergency. But in most states, governors have powers to declare health emergencies, and then that gives them increased power on how to act. So uh, in in most cases, yes, because that was a delegated act by the legitimate uh,
0: lawmaking body. Okay. Example number two, the CDC issues guidelines for private companies or private institutions. Uh, Do those have the force of law? So that's going to depend a lot on
1: what they themselves are doing. So guidelines, so we've talked about laws and rules. We haven't really talked about guidelines. And part of that is because rules, if you remember, are kind of like the specific definitions of key phrases in law. Guidelines really are just suggestions. They are you know, they really are suggestions saying we're experts, we've studied this, we have knowledge. And so these are the guidelines we would ask you to follow. So guidelines will not have the force of law, but rules will. And finding that, and and there's probably going to be some fuzzy points where those are going to come right next to each other, where, you know, I would almost have to look at each one and do a lot of research to figure out which side it falls on. Um, but I would say generally, probably guidelines are not, the, do not have the force of law, but they have, if you, they, they're supposed to, supposed to have the force of wisdom.
0: <laughs> okay. So they're more in the prudence, sort of like, uh, we might, uh, what, wise advice more, yes. than, more than an area of, of specific moral obedience then. Exactly. Okay. Uh, so a example three, a private company puts up a sign saying that masks are required is that law in the private company space?
1: Yeah. So, you know, so this is, this is a great question. So the first thing is, as long as the private company is not violating another law above it. So obviously if a law forbids me from making that command, I can't do it, but it's, you know, it's what we would call house rules, right? It's, you know, it's the same thing. You know, I've got a bunch of kids and uh, yesterday afternoon, a couple of my daughters went over to someone's house after church to hang out for a while. And, I, you know, I try to let my kids know that each house has slightly different rules and that's okay. Like just because our house, we do this and their house, they do that. That doesn't, not a bad thing, but they need to make sure they follow those house rules. That's just by being a polite guest. So I wouldn't call it law because again, it's not made by the supreme authority, Hmm. but it's one of those things where because it's with someone who has at least relative authority over their area, it has, it's a law like action. That's that would be kind of my, my argument. And so they definitely would have the ability to enforce it. And in enforcing it, they would have the ability to, to at least uh, remove people who don't follow. They couldn't punish you in the sense of putting a fine on you or sending you to prison, but there's some ability to, enforce and then remove people who don't who violate that
0: okay i think that makes sense uh last one i think you already uh you answered my fourth one already as a that's a, that fit under the guidelines idea oh, a yeah. day uh so a town issues a mask mandate for uh that town specifically uh but intentionally fails to enforce it without an enforcement mechanism uh is the statement law
1: Yes, maybe. So this is one of the things is, is, you know, going back to Blackstone, you can go back to some of his other discussions of law. So I gave you the definition of municipal law, and he has other branches of law that he talks about. And one of the things he talks about in his earlier definition is the necessity of enforcement, that there has to be enforcement for a law to be a law. Um, and, and here you get into what I like to say is basically people are who the lawmakers themselves are disrespecting the law. Like they're just trying to play games because you should uh, never make a the law. The story of
0: Evan Newsome going to a super expensive restaurant without masks after having had the tightest mask restrictions in the United States in 2020 comes to mind.
1: Yeah, I mean, hypocrisy is part of it, but you should never make a law that you're not willing to enforce. And 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 I'm gonna just go back to parenting, right? So uh, you get, and I have I have children, and if for any listeners who have children, you know, it's really foolish to tell your children something and then not to enforce it, because not only does that teach them not to listen to you, but also because of their hearts, they're probably not gonna obey it, <laughs> or at least. Maybe you, have, maybe you have that perfect angel who will obey it, but if you're like me, you have one perfect angel and a few that are not, and the, the other ones will definitely not obey it. Um, and so the, the reality is, yes, it, so it is law, but it's failed to be enforced by the authority which means they are undermining their own authority. And, and so they're basically teaching people to not listen to their own laws. And it's, it's the stupidest decision, honestly, ever to make because it, lead, it, it leads to chaos because then a future law, people are like, well, why did you enforce, not enforce that one, but you're enforcing this one and, and accusations of hypocrisy come up. And so this is why I'm struggling to say, the answer is technically yes, but because it's not enforced, it's so easy to not follow. And so often in our own hearts, we're like, well, if it's not enforced, why do I need to follow it? And, and my answer is, well, it was made by the proper authority. But again, I, I understand these struggles myself. My heart struggles this way often, particularly with things like seat belts, but we won't talk about that. Um, uh, I have, I have my own areas where I, I struggle in obeying laws that are not always super well enforced. Um, but the reality is, it's still a law, and it might eventually get in, enforced. And so, you know, yeah. So, I, so my, my biggest struggle is, I would tell whoever made the law that they're being really foolish and they're teaching people to disrespect their authority. And I I think that that's going to have greater detrimental effect than not having the law to begin with. I would say just don't have the law. If you're not going to enforce it, don't even have it. No. But if they if they made it, the reality is it, it is a legitimate law. And so for those of you who who follow that you need to obey the law, even if you don't like it, you still have to follow it.
0: I probably add two things to that. I mean, this, this reminds me of uh, a section in uh, Edmund Burke's Reflections where he talks about the difference between abstraction and particularity and that in this case it seems to me that the enforcement mechanism is what really particularizes a law because i can agree with you on a theoretical level about all of those the legitimate authority the timing the the social good the 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 way it, it helps everyone it's an expression of love but all of those are abstract and i can kind of mentally agree to all of those but it's the particularity I can agree that speeding is dangerous and wrong. It's the particularity of those blue lights in my rearview mirror that really remind me that, like, oh. I have to do this. Uh, so at the very yeah, yeah. I would. Uh, the other thing that came to mind as you were describing that is that this 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 was part of the American Revolution. I think as it plays a part in that that there were a lot of taxes on the books that were simply not enforced until uh, England had spent a ton of money on the uh, the French and Indian War. And when you go decades without enforcing laws and then suddenly try to tell people now we're following it. I mean, rightly or wrongly, it created enormous outcry in the American colonies and was a key point of breaking the break of breaking that relationship. So I think it's it's significant for lawmakers just to keep in mind that, like, if it's on the books and hasn't been enforced for an awfully long time, people do not change quickly, easily. Like they do, they right. will embrace yeah. change slowly over time. But if you just like try to abruptly change things, it makes life much harder.
1: <laughs> yep, absolutely, absolutely.
0: Uh, well, Nick, thank you so much for joining me today on the Optimistic Curmudgeon. I've thoroughly enjoyed uh, learning a lot about laws and the the their theory and practice and uh, the, the American administrative state. Uh, and for any listeners who are uh, wanting to know more about the administrative state, we have an episode back in season one where Dr. Don Devine talks about the administrative state and why it's terrible, and basically we should dismantle it. So uh, if you want to know why uh, we should not have one of those, uh, do check that episode out. Uh, Nick, before we close out the episode, uh, where can people find and follow your work online if they wanna know more of what you think about these kinds of issues?
1: Yeah, so I don't have a, a major stage where I, I write or publish regularly every once in a while, I'll get something in an outlet here or there. So probably the best place would be Twitter uh, where you can get some random thoughts of current events and ideas. And that's just uh, at Nick J Higgins. Um, so Twitter at Nick J Higgins and, and you will see my random ramblings. And And I promise probably at some point, because of the difference between abstraction and particularization, there'll be something particularly that is not liked by whoever follows me. That's okay. Um, <laughs> please feel free to engage me in discussion if, if you want, or just uh, to look at it and and kind of see what my, thinkings and ramblings are at various points as uh, i interact with the c- context of the day
0: sounds excellent i think that that uh if there's a good use of twitter i think that probably is the good use of twitter um, uh well listeners thank you for joining us for another episode of the optimistic curmudgeon uh, if you enjoyed this episode please do leave us a five-star review whether that's on youtube or apple podcast or or however you found our program Uh, And uh, as always, you can get in touch with us uh, across various social media platforms, or you can check out our website at optimisticcurmudgeon.org. We love all kinds of feedback. You can send any of that to optimisticcurmudgeon2021 at gmail.com. And until next time, love the good, pursue the true, and enjoy the beautiful. You've been listening to another conversation on the Optimistic Curmudgeon. If you like what you've heard today, please leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcasting platform. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at optimisticcurmudgeon2021 at gmail.com. You can find us on all major social media sites. I'll list three. Uh, We're on Twitter at optimisticc3, on Instagram at optimisticcurmudgeon2021, and Facebook at facebook.com slash the-optimistic-curmudgeon. You can find our show notes, guest bios, and all episodes stored on our website, optimisticcurmudgeon.org. Until next time, seek the good. Love the true and pursue the beautiful.